recorded live. Someday I'll learn. I'm sorry. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 4th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Yeah, you know, I have one inquiry this year. Usually I get a lot more. I guess people are maybe starting to realize that I'm not the calendar guy. But I do have one inquiry this year from a very um, dear and faithful sister in our faith and, and, and asking me about the Passover dates. I just put a link into the chats at TalkShoe and at Christagenia. Um, that won't help people listening to this recording tomorrow or subsequently. But but there's a post in the Christiania forum under a, a section of the forum entitled Feasts and Calendar Issues, which is accessible right from the front page of the forum. And the post is called Link to Ken Lentz 2013-2014 Solar Calendar with Feast Days. I believe Pastor Lent has actually updated that now to 2014 and 2015, but the link is still valid. I don't do calendars. I'm not a calendar guy. I have several scriptural reasons for that. I also have several personal reasons. But if you're wishing to keep Passover on a correct date this year... Passover was, according to Pastor Lent, two days ago. It started the evening of April 2nd. According to him, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins yesterday evening into today. And the next Sabbath, special Sabbath, is the evening of April 9th. And the next Sabbath, the evening of April 11th. People can go to the Christianity Forum, find the links, and examine his calendar. For my part, when, when, um, whenever you can get together with your loved ones and celebrate Christ, that is an appropriate feast. Colossians 2.16, no one must judge you in food and drink. Food, not pork. Pork is not food. Shellfish is not food. No one must judge you in food and drink or in respect of feast or new moon or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things. If you can celebrate the Sabbaths and and the feasts with your family, that's fine. Don't let anybody judge you. If you can't, if you choose not to, if you decide that um, it, it's expedient to get together some other day. That's life. And, and we're in this period of trial and punishment and separation from God. It, it's our heart that matters. It's our love for our kindred race and for God's law that matters, much more than the feasts or the Sabbaths. And, and Christ demonstrated that fully, throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry, earthly ministry. With that, we will begin our presentation of the Epistles of Paul, the Letter to the Romans, Part 2. Presenting the first half of Romans Chapter 1 last week, 
We left off with verse 17 and Paul's citation of Habakkuk 2.4, where he says that the just shall live by faith. In commenting upon that citation, we established that in the context of the original remark as it is found in Habakkuk, and we are obligated to see that, to see that the things that the apostle is saying are so, just like the Berians did, and they were commended for it. We are also obligated to go back and examine those citations from the Old Testament and examine their context so that we may understand them. In the context of the original remark, as it is found in Habakkuk, the statement intends to describe the righteous of those of the children of Israel who were going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. I'm sorry, I have a slight technical problem. Because the law had failed, when the rulers and priests of Israel began to deal unjustly, the people were fated to be oppressed and forced to live under the laws of Babylon, a situation which was to endure for an appointed time. In Ezekiel chapter 21, we have corroboration for this interpretation where Yahweh said that he will cut off from the land of Israel both the righteous and the wicked. From Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarries, Wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In the epistle to the Romans, Paul was teaching the fulfillment of these words in Habakkuk, which is assured where the prophet wrote, In the end it shall speak, meaning that the fulfillment would indeed become evident, Paul is showing us that the fulfillment in the turning of the dispersed children of Israel to Christ. This is why, in the next several chapters of this epistle, Paul demonstrates that those of Israel who, who are just or righteous in the eyes of God are not manifest in a keeping of the rituals of the law, the law had failed. But instead, they are manifest by a turning to the faith of Christ, along with an exhibition of the law, which Yahweh promised would be written in their hearts. And let me say that when we say that the law had failed, well, first it's a quote of the King James, where in Habakkuk chapter 1, but... It doesn't mean that the law of God failed. It means that the law was no longer kept correctly by the children of Israel. They let it fail by becoming disobedient to it. So when we say the law had failed, we're not blaming God or God's law. It's, the ball was in our court to keep his law, to be obedient.
The children of Israel would not be manifest in the keeping of the rituals of the law, but rather by turning to the faith of Christ, along with an exhibition of the law which Yahweh had promised would be written in their hearts. This is Paul's message in these opening chapters. The next few verses of this first chapter of Romans fully demonstrate that the children of Israel and no others certainly remain the focus of the gospel message. The proof is in the pudding for certain. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice. Now the difference may seem trivial on its surface, but here the verb in the final clause is cat echo. And it has a much stronger meaning than simply to hold, which the King James Version reads here. The verb echo alone would have been appropriate for that. The word is to hold back, to withhold, to check, restrain, control, or bridle. And thus, the phrase is properly read, who withhold the truth. This further reveals that Paul is meaning to describe people who had the truth in the first place. The highest god of pagan Rome was Job. J-O-V as in Victor, E is how it's usually spelled in English literature. It's actually because the J was not a Latin letter and because the U and the V were the same letter in Latin, it's actually I-O-U-E. It can be demonstrated etymologically that Jove is phonetically equivalent to the Hebrew name Yahweh, regardless of how insistently the Judaized academics deny that. The meaning and origination of the name Jupiter, by which Job is also called a name which was synonymous with Job throughout Latin literature, the meaning of the name Jupiter is in the words Jove, or Yahweh, Pater, Jove, Pater, Yahweh, Father. The Romans must have indeed had the truth of God and changed it into lies as Paul is about to tell us in this chapter, by turning away from their earliest profession and adopting all sorts of pagan idolatry. While we did not agree with their assertions concerning quote-unquote Indo-European roots, and that's a whole other topic, for a similar explanation of the name Job, there's a website called Behind the Name, which gives etymologies and histories for many names in history and mythology. There it says of Job, and I quote, from the Latin Jupiter, which was ultimately derived from the Indo-European du pater, and, and that I don't agree with, composed of the elements dus, I don't agree with that, and pater, father. It's actually composed of the elements 
Yahweh or Yahweh and Pater, Father. Jupiter was the supreme god in Roman mythology. He presided over the heavens and light. Imagine that. And was responsible for the protection and laws of the Roman state. Imagine that. It just sounds like an ancient Israelite belief. It's because it is an ancient Israelite belief. Just a, a, a note on Roman mythology to show that Paul and what he says is certainly verified in Roman mythology and in history. Verse 19. Because that which is to be known of Yahweh is visible among them, since Yahweh has made it known to them. Paul's talking about Romans here. He's not talking about Jews. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the cosmos are clearly observed, being understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity. For this they are inexcusable. Let me say that word cosmos is a very hard word to get your head around. The Greeks saw it as the adornment because cosmos is basically an adjective that means decoration or adornment, order or arrangement. The Greek physical world was the oikumene, the order, arrangement, adornment of the physical world was the cosmos. It was the order. It was the society. In a worldly aspect, it wasn't the world like the planet, which is ridiculous from a, from a, a point of view of Greek literature. It was the adornment of society, but they saw the heavens... And the seasons and everything associated with them, they saw that as part of the adornment of the oikumene, the oikumene being the physical world, the physical dwelling place. That's what it means, dwelling place of man. So they had totally different ideas from a totally different vantage point than we have in modern times. They had an oikumene, which was their physical dwelling place, and they defined the oikumene. The oikumene was not the planet to the Greeks. The oikumene, according to Diodor Siculus, according to Strabo, the oikumene had bounds, and they knew that there was land beyond that oikumene, but they knew that they didn't inhabit those lands. The oikumene was the land of the Greco-Roman people and, and their world. The adornment of that was the cosmos. And, and speaking from a, a worldly perspective, that can very often be translated as society, but society doesn't fit every use of the word because sometimes it includes the heavens and the seasons and the times and the winds and everything else the Greeks saw as part of the adornment of their oikumene. So 
Cosmos is a hard word to wrap your head around, and, and you really have to think about it to understand it. We can't take, it's not possible to take every single word in one language, because a word in a language represents a concept and expect it to have an exactly correlating parallel in a different language. It doesn't work that way because sometimes languages don't have one single word representing every single possible concept. I hope that's understandable. Verse 20 again. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the cosmos are clearly observed. Being understood in the things made, both of his eternal power and divinity. For this, they are inexcusable. In Acts chapter 16, Paul encountered and preached the gospel to certain men in Philippi, who then complained that Paul and his companions teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. In Rome, it was not lawful for men to adopt the religious understanding being declared by Paul and his companions because religion was regulated by both law and tradition. There were strong ties between Roman civil and social life and their pagan rites and religious beliefs. Therefore, Paul evidently had the intention here of specifying certain men who withheld the truth, choosing to maintain the state-decreed paganism and the cult of the emperor in spite of the truth. Paul knew that these men should know better, and that's basically what he's attesting to here. As he also does here, in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul professed an understanding, at least to some degree, of the physics of creation, where he said that, by faith we perceive the ages to be furnished by the word of Yahweh, in which that which is seen has not come into being from things visible. In Acts chapter 17, Paul professed that the Damic man should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. In Amos 3.2, Yahweh said unto Israel, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Yahweh warned us that as part of that punishment, and I quote, I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought. On the surface, these two ideas are seemingly disparate. 
these two seemingly disparate ideas, the invisible God and the punishment of Israel. However, these two ideas are converged in Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Now we must bear in mind that in Paul's first letter, in Corinthians chapter 10, we have record in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have record that he indeed taught them that they were descended from the children of Israel who, who were with Moses in the Exodus. So Paul understood that the Corinthians were a part of that Israel in punishment. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, from verse 15, all things are for the sake of you in order that the favor abounding over the greater number would exceed the thankfulness to the honor of Yahweh, on which account we do not falter, rather than if our outer man is being destroyed, then our inner is being restored day by day. And here's the point, verse 17. For the present lightness of our tribulation and exceedingly surpassing eternal abundance of honor is earned by us. We, not considering the things being seen, but the things not being seen. The things being seen, temporary, but the things not being seen, eternal. The reference to the present lightness of our tribulation is a reference to the suffering of the children of Israel in the period of their punishment, which was ordained by God which we see in Amos 3.2, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 31. As others of the prophets also said, and as Habakkuk had prophesied in that very place which Paul cited earlier, that the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. During this period of punishment, Yahweh warned the same children of Israel that he would not manifest his presence to them. And that is why Paul professes in 2 Corinthians that our hope lies not in that which is seen, but in that which is not seen. In other words, the children of Israel in their dispersion, we only have the testimony of Christ. That's all we're supposed to have in our period of punishment, which was to last for seven times, we interpret that as 2,520 years, Christ only came in his first advent, perhaps 700 years, roughly, into that period of punishment. So it is a long period of time beyond that, that he would continue, that Yahweh would continue to hide his face from the children of Israel. All we have is the gospel. from Deuteronomy chapter 31, from verse 16. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. 
and I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? That we consider these things today is proof alone that God is true. Verse 18, Deuteronomy 31. And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils they shall have wrought. In that they are turned unto other gods. Israel is given similar warning in Micah, whereupon the Assyrian captivity is said in Micah chapter 5, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But now, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that which is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he will give them up until the time that she which travaileth has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. The smiting was in the Assyrian destruction and deportations of Israel and most of Judah. He, meaning God, would give them up, meaning Israel, until they returned to him in Christ. This being a messianic prophecy. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of all these things. He's telling these Romans, who were descendants of the ancient Israelites, that they've seen the majesty of God. They've seen the glory of God. They should know better than to practice these pagan acts which they practice and, and to create gods from the works of the hands of men, to change the estimation of God into the forms of man and animals, which they did, statues, worshiping statues, burning incense, everything the Catholics do now. In the end, when the expected second advent, Israel is sanctified again. Yahweh is promised not to hide from Israel any longer. Where he states in Ezekiel chapter 39 that neither will I hide my face anymore from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. The children of Israel were forsaken by their God because they had forsaken him. Yet they, and only they, once had the truth of God, and it turned to idolatry. But even in this idolatry would the children of Israel be preserved. We see in Isaiah chapter 42 from verse 16, And I will bring the blind, that's the children of Israel, who is blind but my servant, and I will bring the blind but a, by a way that they knew not, and I will lead them in paths that they have not known. 
I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Then shall be turned back, then they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, ye are our gods. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as Yahweh's servant? Paul's mission was to bring the gospel of Christ to, the, to those very people, the dispersed of Israel, thereby opening the eyes of the blind. The ancestors of the Romans were dispersed much earlier than the Assyrian deportations, as were many other Israelites, including the Dorian Greeks, who were ultimately um, who ultimately produced the Spartans and the Corinthians. However, they were Israel nonetheless. Many other statements in Paul's epistle to the Romans shall clearly elucidate the truth of that assertion as we proceed through it. Verse 21, Because knowing Yahweh, they thought of him not as God, nor were they thankful, but they became foolish in their reasonings and were darkened, their hearts void of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the estimation of the incorruptible Yahweh into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and reptiles, serpents. From the days of the distribution of the Adamic Genesis 10 tribes on the plains of Shinar, only the children of Israel had known Yahweh. From Genesis chapter 18, from verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of Yahweh to do justice and judgment that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Even Abraham's fathers had practiced idolatry, worshipped strange gods. We see that in Joshua, chapter 24, where it says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, meaning the other side of the river, right? The river Euphrates. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. One example of God's having made himself known only to Israel is found in Exodus chapter 5. From verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold the feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not Yahweh, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice unto Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? So we see this Pharaoh, with all the wisdom and knowledge of Egypt at his fingertips, was ignorant of the God of the Hebrews. How could the Romans be expected to know that God unless they were Israel? An explicit statement supporting this assertion is found in Psalm 89, from verse 15. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Yahweh, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. Language familiar from the announcement of the coming Christ in Luke chapter 1. For Yahweh is our defense. The Holy One of Israel is our King. Yet in spite of the fact that the magnificence of the presence of God was found exclusively among the children of Israel, having the truth of God, they nevertheless turn to idolatry. Here are three examples in the prophets from Isaiah chapter 10, from verse 10. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, also do to Jerusalem and her idols? you want to look for the dispersions of the children of Israel, you have to look for pagans, <laughs> certainly not for Jews. From Jeremiah chapter 10, from verse 14, every man is brutish in his knowledge, every founder is confounded by the graven images, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Likewise from Ezekiel, from chapter 7. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Also thou son of man, thus saith, Yahweh God under the land of Israel. An end. The end is come upon the four corners of the land. Now is the end come upon thee. And I will send mine anger upon thee. And will judge thee according to thy ways. And will recompense upon, all, upon thee all thine abominations. And mine eyes shall not spare thee. Neither will I have pity, but I will recompense the ways upon thee and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, and evil, and only evil, behold, is come, and end is come, the end is come, it watches for thee, behold, it is come. The morning is come unto thee, O thou that dwellest in the land, 
The time has come, the day of trouble is near, and not the sounding again of the mountains. Now will I shortly pour out, pour out my fury upon thee, and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And skipping to verse 18, they shall, gird, they shall also gird themselves with sackcloth, and horror shall cover them, and shame shall be upon all faces, and baldness upon all their heads. They shall cast the silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver, their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of Yahweh. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. As for the beauty of his ornament, referring to Yahweh, he said it in majesty, but they made the images of their abominations and of their detestable things therein. Therefore have I said it, meaning his ornament, far from them. This is the other end. This is the beginning of the things that Paul is talking about in Romans, where Paul is talking about the result. The prophets are talking about one end of the stick. 700 years later, Paul is telling those same people at the other end of the stick that it's time to turn to Christ, to put away the idols that their ancestors had picked up so many centuries ago. In the light of the words of the prophets, one should never look abroad for Jews when searching for the dispersed of biblical Israel. Rather, one must look for pagans, and those pagans are found in ancient Europe, which is why the apostles went to ancient Europe and not to Arabia, China, Ethiopia, Kenya, or to any other non-white nations. Here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about Romans, and yet he is talking about Israelites, for only the children of Israel had the truth of God and changed it into lies. The evidence of Paul's assertions being found throughout the words of the prophets of Yahweh. The only valid conclusion is that the Romans must indeed have been descended from Israelites. And therefore, everything which identity Christians should understand about Roman origins, that they had descended from the Trojans, who were themselves a colony of Israelites from Egypt, is demonstrated to be true. Subsequent chapters of this epistle shall corroborate these assertions. Verse 24. On which account Yahweh hands them over to uncleanness 
in the passions of their hearts, their bodies to be dishonored among themselves. Everyone who exchanges, to exchange the truth, you have to have had it in the first place, right? Everyone who exchanges the truth of Yahweh with falsehoods and reverences and serves the creation rather than the creator who is praised for the ages, truly, or amen. A passage we also offered in the recent presentation on the prophecy of Micah. This is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, from verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them. In other words, he might show them that they might see that they themselves are beasts. And without the guidance of the Spirit of God, his word and his law, men are indeed little but beasts. When men forsake God, God surrenders men to their own beastly desires, the unclean passion of, passions of their hearts. This is manifest in the struggle each man must face to suppress the desires of the flesh and the temptations of the world in favor of pursuing the things of the Spirit, which Paul describes at length in Romans chapter 8. For this, the same writer of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 3, verse 10, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Verse 26, Therefore Yahweh handed them over to a state of disgrace, for both their females exchanged their natural intimacy for that contrary to nature. And likewise, the males have given up the natural intimacy of the female, inflamed in their desires for one another, males with males, perpetrating shamefulness. And their wandering necessitates the reward they are receiving among themselves. Here we see that sodomy, which society today insists upon calling by a euphemism homosexuality, sodomy is actually a punishment from God for sin, and explicitly for the sin of abandoning God. Therefore, the professions of humanism, atheism, and other false gods promoted primarily by the Jews lead us directly to homosexuality and lesbianism. Our very circumstances today are sufficient proof of the assertion in this same respect. It was those same Canaanite bastards of the ancient world, the ancestors of today's Jews, by whom the children of Israel were led into paganism. And therefore, sodomy abounded in Rome. And it had its share of Jews. 
From Exodus chapter 23, verse 24. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve Yahweh your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. Thou shalt make, under verse 32, thou shalt make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 12, when Yahweh thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that, they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou not inquire after their God, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto Yahweh thy God, for every abomination to Yahweh, which he hates, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. And likewise today, we have abortion clinics operated primarily by Canaanite Jews. The children of Israel failed to drive the Canaanite nations out from their land. And for that, they were decreed to suffer, from Judges chapter 2. And an angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you go up out of Egypt. And it brought you under the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare unto you. Shortly thereafter, from the same chapter of Judges, we read from verse 12, And they forsook Yahweh, God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked Yahweh to anger. The rest of the Bible and the rest of history is concerned with the return of those same children of Israel to Yahweh their God. For many centuries, Europe consisted of relatively Christian nations. Once Christianity became fully established, and those invaders, the Moors, the Turks, once those invaders brought into Europe by the Jews were fought off, those nations which kept their Christianity began to conquer the rest of the world for better or worse. 
It can be established in scripture and history that those who are known as Jews today are indeed descended from the ancient Canaanites of scripture. With their emancipation, their gaining of citizenship throughout the countries of Europe, starting with the turn of the 19th century, humanism and egalitarianism and every related heresy had become the religion of the West, which has forsaken true Christianity. Therefore, with the abandonment of God, Sodom and Gomorrah had been resurrected, and all Christendom has been handed over to that same state of disgrace, while the rest of the world and all the non-white beasts once again overrun the children of God. Sodomy in Rome at Paul's time was very real indeed. Paul's words are substantiated by the historian Tacitus, who inferred in his Germania that in the Rome of his time, immorality was considered fashionable or up-to-date in Rome, and indeed it was. Tacitus states from Germania, chapter 12, the assembly, meaning the, the, the German tribal assembly, is competent also to hear criminal charges, especially those involving the risk of capital punishment. The mode of execution varies according to the offense. Traitors and deserters are hanged on trees. Coward shirkers and sodomites are pressed down under a wicker hurdle into the slimy mud of a bog. It, it, it makes me laugh when these Jewish archaeologists dig out bodies from the bogs of Germany and say, oh, this was a human sacrifice. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Read Tacitus. It wasn't a human sacrifice. It was a damned sodomite. That's what it was. He got what he had coming. Too bad we don't do those things today. Back to Tacitus. The distinction in the punishments is based on the idea that offenders against the state should be made a public example of, whereas deeds of shame should be buried out of men's sight. From Tacitus's Germania, from chapter 19, no one in Germany finds vice amusing or calls it up to date to seduce and be seduced. Good morality in Germany is more effective than good laws elsewhere. By contrasting morality in Germany, Tacitus fully infers the immorality of Rome, where certain forms of morality could not even be upheld by law. In fact, in other Roman literature of the period, such as in the poetry of Catullus or Virgil, Ovid, Petronius, Juvenal, and Martial, there are many references to sodomy and other indecent sexual acts and relationships. Marial's poetry is often so obscene, he was, by some writers, he's considered the court pornographer of the Roman emperors. 
His poetry is often so obscene that many parts of it are regularly omitted from even the most scholarly English translations. The Roman historian Suetonius also documented much of the sexual depravity of the courts of the various Caesars, along with their immorality in other areas as well. There's no doubt Paul's description of Rome here is fitting. Verse 28, And just as they do not think it's fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting, being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of Yahweh, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless, that word covenant breakers, as it is also here in the King James Version. It's the plural form of a word, asuntados, Strong's number 802. It may be better rendered as promise, break, promise breakers or even merely as faithless, undependable. However, the conscious attempt, when I did this translation, where it appears here was to keep the language in line with the Old Testament, that unbridled by decency, the nature of these people was to fail in their relationship to God as well as their relationships to men. Support for the translation is found in Brenton Septuagint. Verse 32, such as these, meaning these Romans who were given up and handed over to this reprobate mind and sodomizing lifestyle by God, such as these who, knowing the judgments of Yahweh, and the Codex Claromontanus interpolates the words they do not understand here, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. Except the uh, hate the sin, love the sinner, take them into your house. Why not? Bring that faggot into your house and have dinner with them. Introduce him to your son. You're accepting him. You're approving of his sin. You're approving of his sodomy when you accept a fag or a lesbian. You're approving of their sin. You also are worthy of death under the law, according to Paul of Tarsus. Paul's not wrong. All of these sins which first century Romans had been committing, which were all contrary to the laws of God, sodomy, fornication, many of the other things which Paul mentions here, all invite the penalty of death under the laws of God. At one time, they also invited the penalty of death in Rome. However, over time, those laws were disregarded. Sounds like America today, right? 
However, Paul here also asserts that those who approve of these things, whether or not they actually ever committed them, are also liable to the penalty of death under the laws of God. From Leviticus chapter 5, from verse 1. And if a soul sins, and hear the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, if he does not utter it, that he shall bear his iniquity. Perhaps the Septuagint will serve to help clarify the language. And if his soul sins and hears the voice of swearing and he is a witness or has seen or been conscious of the sin, if he does not report it, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, he will suffer the penalty for that sin. If a person witnesses a sin and does not testify against it, that person is just as liable for the penalty as the sinner is under the law of God. Approval of a sinful act is indeed tantamount to denying that a sin had taken place. If you approve the act, well, then you're not professing that it's a sin. So according to Paul and according to Leviticus, you too are liable to the penalty for, for that sin. Think about that the next time you greet a race mixer or the next time you accept a sodomite and bring these people into your company and treat them like brethren. They have to be rejected. Race mixers and sodomites have to be rejected. We don't accept them. Not at all. Put out the evil from among you. If you love the body of Christ, you'll put out the evil from among you. From Isaiah chapter 28, from verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of Yahweh, ye scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. In other words, the people didn't think they would be punished for their sins. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehoods, we have hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, and this is a promise of Christ, and ultimately a promise of mercy in repentance. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. In the same manner, we will see Paul in the second verse of chapter 2 make the same turn towards an appeal to mercy. I'm sorry. Perhaps, chapter, perhaps verse 4 of chapter 2, I believe. And with that, we will begin chapter 2. On which account, you are inexcusable, O man, all who judge... Since in that which you judge another, you are condemning yourself. 
indeed, you practice the things which are judged. Paul is not denouncing judgment. If we accept the sinner, we approve of the sin, Paul just warned us against that. Rather, he is denouncing hypocritical judgment. The hate the sin, love the sinner attitude of Judaized Christians is unacceptable, as Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 1. And not only those who commit certain grievous sins, but also those who approve of those sins are worthy of death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul urges a certain Christian assembly to cast a fornicator out of their company, quoting the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 17.7, where he tells them, you will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. Christians are therefore expected to despise both the sin and the sinner and to separate themselves from them. Of course, repentance is another manner. However, Christians are expected to be obedient to Christ. And if they are truly obedient, that precludes any possibility of hypocritical judgment. The Romans, however, often condemned those who committed unrighteous acts, while at the same time they were committing those same acts or certain other unrighteous acts, which had become, as Tacitus put it, up-to-date, modern, or fashionable. Verse 2, But we know that the judgment of Yahweh is in accordance with truth towards those who practice such things. Ultimately, Christ is our only judge because only he knows the things of our hearts. And because only he can judge without hypocrisy. Yahweh, manifesting himself in the flesh as Yahshua Christ, he having experienced the flesh, can indeed be a righteous judge of all flesh. Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 3. And consider this, O man, who is judging those who practice such things, then practicing them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of Yahweh? The Romans, as well as the Greeks, professed a belief in the continued existence of the spirit of man after death. The concept of Hades and the judgment after death for the deeds of a man in life, which, although those beliefs were permuted by pagan influences, nevertheless reflected ancient Christian truths. Paul is telling the Romans things that they're familiar with. They understood these concepts even though they understood them from a pagan perspective. Here Paul challenges such men as to whether they really believed that they could escape the judgment of God, that although they judged others, they should somehow be above judgment. The old myths which the Greeks and Romans had kept 
even after they ceased believing them, were indeed based on things which our race upheld to be true in the greatest antiquity. I'm going to read a segment of a poem attributed to Hesiod. Hesiod, along with Homer, is among the earliest of the surviving Greek epic poets. If I had to, I would date Homer to about 610 B.C. And yes, I have documentation to back that up. In the Greek elegaic poet Archilochus, who is known to be from about 585 B.C., who said that Homer wrote about a generation before his time. Hesiod was said by to be a contemporary of Homer. So we're going back to the very end of the 7th century B.C. That's the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. From Hesiod's poem, Works and Days, starting with line 238. And I quote, this is from the Loeb Classical Library Edition, but for those who practice violence and cruel deeds, far-seeing Zeus, the son of Kronos, Kronos, I believe, comes from a word, the same word for time, ordains a punishment. Often even a whole city suffers for a bad man who sins and devises presumptuous deeds. And the son of Kronos lays great trouble upon the people, famine and plague together, so that the men perish away, and their women do not bear children, and their houses become few through the contriving of Olympian Zeus. And again, at another time, the son of Kronos, another epithet for Zeus, right? The Greek word for God, either destroys their wide army or their walls, or else makes an end of their ships on the sea. You princes, mark well this punishment, you also, for the deathless gods are near among men, and mark all those who oppress their fellows with crooked judgments, and wreck not the anger of the gods. For upon the bounteous earth, Zeus has thrice 10,000 spirits, watchers, compared Daniel 4. Watchers of mortal men, and these keep watch on judgments and deeds of wrong as they roam, clothed in mist all over the earth. With a few changes, that text could almost be mistaken for a biblical passage. Take out Zeus, the son of Kronos, put in Yahweh God, make a few other cosmetic changes, we could have a biblical passage here. I'm not promoting paganism, believe me. We could have a biblical passage here because the Greeks and Romans originally believed those same things concerning sin and judgment and the resulting punishments by God in which the Israelites could believe in which the Bible attests. The Greeks and Romans had the truth of God and turned it into lies. 
because they were indeed the descendants of those same Old Testament Israelites who turned to paganism. And we see in, in the words of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, we don't see the beginning of that turn to paganism. We see the end of it and the resulting punishment itself, which took many centuries in ancient Israel to manifest. If you go all the way back to the book of Joshua, you'll see that Yahweh had given up the children of Israel to the host of heaven for their disobedience. And it's the book of Joshua, which is a lot closer to the time of the founding of Troy and the beginning of Roman history in the Trojans. Verse 4. This really continues from verse 3, right? This is the second part of Paul's statement. After they, after Paul asked them if they imagined that they could escape the judgment of God, he says, or the wealth of his kindness and the tolerance and patience. that you think contemptuously of, ignorant that the benevolence of Yahweh leads you to repentance. Paul takes a sharp rhetorical turn here and hearkens to the fact that Yahweh God had promised mercy and a cleansing of sin to all of Israel, provided that they are repentant and turn back to him. These are indeed descendants of Israelites who Paul is addressing, since it can only be said of Israel that they changed the truth of God into a lie. Where Paul is addressing Romans when he says that. And understanding in Israel is that one's sins are forgiven. Once one's sins are forgiven, that should stimulate a desire for repentance and a turning to God. From 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Likewise, from Micah chapter 7, from verse 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Likewise, Jeremiah chapter 33 from verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return. I will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from 
all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Now, this idea caused a serious conflict in the minds of many people hearing the gospel, and Paul explains this at length, and we will discuss it at length when we get into the later part of chapter 2 through chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. That's how long it takes to explain the concept. Of course, these promises only apply to the children of Israel, and therefore the Romans must be among those nations which sprung from Israel. Further proofs of this assertion lie in the balance of the second chapter as well as in other subsequent portions of this epistle. Verse 5, but in accordance with your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you store up to yourself anger in the day of wrath and revelation. The Codex Alexandrinus reads requital there. Of the righteous judgment of Yahweh, who will render to each according to his works. And that last phrase is a citation from Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. Paul's indicating here that people are offended by the idea that they will be judged for their sins. But in accordance with your stubborn and unrepentant heart, they store up anger when they should be happy to accept God and Christ, to repent from their sins, and to seek his forgiveness. It's the same situation today. You tell people they're going to be judged for their sins. Go tell that fag that lives down the street, oh, you're going to be judged for your sins. He's going to probably respond violently because they don't want to believe that they're ever going to be judged for their sins. They want God to accept them and their sins. Well, he has news for them. Psalm 62.12, also under thee, O Lord, that word is today, literally Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Proverbs 24.12, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, does not he that pondereth the heart consider it, and he that keepeth thy soul, does he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Of course, none of these passages can be interpreted outside of this context, that the law and the word of God is for the children of Israel exclusively. Isaiah 63, verse 19, We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. To apply these words universally is tantamount to stealing from God. All of this, every statement of Paul's in Romans has to be read in context. 
You can't take a line out of context and apply it universally. When Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 2, that Yahweh will judge each according to his works, will render to each according to his works, he's talking about those people back there in chapter 1, verse 25, who had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. Only the children of Israel had the truth of God. The same Christ who said, I am not sent, but under the lost sheep in the house of Israel, in Matthew chapter 15, that same Christ said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand in John chapter 10. And the same Christ said again, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil in John chapter 17. Romans 2, 7. Surely to those with endurance in good works, honor and dignity and incorruptibility they seek eternal life. But to those of contention and they who disobey the truth but are persuaded by injustice, anger and wrath, infliction and strain on every soul of man who labors to accomplish evil, both of the Judean at the beginning and then of the Greek. We'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about the extent of rewards and punishment or lack of rewards or reproach for our works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here in Romans, in Romans 2.9, Romans 2.10, Romans 3.9, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, chapter 12, verse 13, as well as twice in the Gospel of John at chapter 7, verse 35. In all these places, the King James Version translated the word Helene. In all the manuscripts of Helene, the King James translation translated it as Gentile. That is patently dishonest. Since Helene is the Greek word for Greek. It's not the Greek word for Gentile. It's the Greek word for Greek. To substitute a word, which then in turn is incorrectly said to refer to anyone who is not a Judean, is to intentionally pervert the intended meaning of the original text. Paul's not comparing Jews and Gentiles here. Paul's comparing Judeans and Greeks. Paul's message is describing here Greeks and Judeans, and we cannot imagine that he is including anybody else. This is a prime example of the dishonesty which has been injected into the scripture in order to serve universalism. To the Judean at the beginning, and then to the Greek, 
because among the tribes of Israel, the tents of Judah are to be saved first, which we see proclaimed in Zechariah chapter 12. And therefore Christ proclaims in John chapter 4 that salvation is from among the Judeans. And most of the true Israelites among the Judeans were indeed of Judah. But they were not the sum total of Judah by any means. The spread of the gospel fit the pattern of the will of God. The Judean assemblies throughout Europe were used as a bridge for the gospel to reach the dispersions of Israel, which is fully evident throughout the book of Acts. For this reason also, it was necessary for Paul to go to Macedonia before he went to the Greek cities of Asia, which is explained in Acts chapter 16. Two notable people came from the dispersions of the Trojans, the Romans and the Illyrians. And the Illyrians were found among the Macedonians of Paul's time. While it is not recorded in Acts, in Romans chapter 15, Paul professes that he preached the gospel in Illyricum. Ostensibly, the gospel reached much of the ancient dispersions of Judah, as well as the Judeans, before it was preached in the cities of the Greeks. From Psalm 114, Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. The denominational sects do not understand the identity of Judah or Israel, and they have no concept of Judah as opposed to Israel. Failing to distinguish them, they instead imagine Christianity to be a universal religion, which is contrary to the Bible and the words of Christ. From Leviticus chapter 26, verse 18, And if you will not hearken for all this unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. The air will be heavy, and the ground will not yield. And if ye will not be reformed by me, by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send a pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Yahweh told the children of Israel by the prophet Amos that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says, For whom Yahweh loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You endure discipline as sons. Yahweh engages you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? But if you be without discipline, 
of which you have all become partakers, and you are bastards and not sons, a biological distinction. Accordingly, we have had as disciplinarians our fathers of the flesh, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits, and we shall live? Indeed, they for a few days, meaning the fathers of the flesh, for a few days had disciplined in accordance with that which is determined by them. But he for a benefit, for which to have a share in his holiness. Now any discipline for the present seems not to be of joy but of grief, though later returns peaceable fruit of righteousness to those having been trained by it. Yahweh punishes his children for chastisement. Yahweh punishes his enemies out of vengeance. The punishment of Romans 2.9 is for chastisement. Not all punishment is the same. From Deuteronomy 32.43, and I'll omit the added word with, seen in the King James. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. The Romans, being some of the beneficiaries of that mercy, they are the children of Israel in part. Romans chapter 2, verse 10. But honor and dignity and peace to everyone who labors for good, both to the Judean at the beginning, then to the Greek, for there is no respect of the stature of persons with Yahweh. The Greek word, prosopolanxia. Yeah, it's a long one. That word appears three times in the epistles of Paul and also in James chapter 2 where the word is best defined. In the Christogenian New Testament, this word, prosopolepsia, is the respect of the stature or status of persons. It has nothing to do with the body of persons. There are... Greek words used in secular writers which do have to do with receiving the body of persons. Those words are leodakos and leodekomahi, the receiving or the esteem of persons. That or those words have to do with receiving or accepting the bodies of persons. This word prosopolamsia is different. These words, prosopolamsia and, and the related words which appear in Scripture, Acts 10.34, the verb at James 2.9, these words are apparently only found in the New Testament and later ecclesiastical writings. So basically, it seems that the New Testament writers use this 
word for explicit purpose rather than use the common, the more common Greek words, Leodokus and, and Leodekomahi. The following is repeated from our commentary where we encountered this word in Acts chapter 10, the word prosopolamptes, Acts 10.34, which is a respecter of the stature or status of persons. And this is what we said there. Many commentators would insist that the use of these words in Scripture somehow proves that Yahweh God does not distinguish between the races. However, that assertion is contradicted in many places. As James illustrates in the second chapter of his epistle, this idea represented by this word, prosopolamsia, rather describes such a difference as that between a wealthy man and a poor man. And James gives a lengthy example where he says, My brethren, do not, with respect of the stature of persons, that same word, prosopolamsia, hold the faith of our Prince Yahshua Christ of honor. For if perhaps a man should enter into your assembly hall with the gold ring, in a shining garment, and a beggar should enter in with a filthy garment. Then you should look upon he wearing the shining garment and say, you sit comfortably here. And to the beggar you should say, you stand there, or sit beneath my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges of evil reasonings? In verse 4, those words, among yourselves, are very telling and very important. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, has Yahweh not chosen the beggars in society to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you dishonored the beggar? Do the wealthy not exercise power over you, and they themselves drag you into trial? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name Christian labeled upon you? The stature or status of persons here in James chapter 2 had nothing to do with race, since both Romans or Greeks and Judeans were at the same time racially indistinguishable except for their status. The stature of stature of persons has nothing to do with race the way Paul uses the term. It can be seen in Flavius Josephus in book 12 of his Antiquities of the Judeans that if the Judeans hid the circumcision of their genitals, they could appear to be Greeks even if they were naked. Therefore, from the way James uses this word and the description that he gives in explaining that we shouldn't have respect of the status of persons, respect it's respect of persons in the King James Version. It's Translated, respect of the stature of persons for that reason in the Christianity New Testament. Because it doesn't refer to race, it refers to the dress, the customs, things like circumcision, the wealth, the position of a person. It has nothing at all to do with race. Notice that James compares the treatment of the wealthy to the poor. And she says 
But by discriminating against the poor, have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges of the evil reasonings? With this language, James affirms that the wrongful distinction being made is among the recipients of his epistle and not between those recipients and any outsiders. He's not talking about outsiders. James's epistle is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and to nobody else. Outsiders are not a factor because outsiders are not subjects of the covenants and promises of God. Therefore, James is telling those people of the 12 tribes scattered abroad not to discriminate amongst themselves. The phrase, respecter of persons, must be understood within the context of all the promises of Scripture which are exclusive to Israel. And the commandments for Israel is to remain exclusive. Found in the New Testament, in places such as 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, this word prosopolampes or prosopolampsia and the related words and the relevant phrases are not to be understood in contradiction of the promises and the commandments. Therefore, is a respecter of the status of persons and it has nothing to do with race because non-Adamic races are never included in the covenants of Israel, Old Testament or New. It's not a factor. Peter mentions where he uses this term in Acts 10.34, the term each nation, but then he says that Yahweh God sent the account, meaning the gospel, to the sons of Israel, and Peter never intends to transgress that statement because the scripture cannot be broken. So we can't let the Judeo-Christians and the Universalists force their reasoning upon us with this respective persons phrase, because the respective persons phrase has nothing to do with a permutation or a violation of the covenants. It has everything to do with how Israelites treat one another, whether they're cast off, dispersed Israel, like the Greeks and the Romans, or whether they are pious Judeans who kept the circumcision, the law, the covenants. And that's the distinction Paul continues to make through the next several, several chapters of his epistle, whether they're pagan Greeks turned to Christ or whether they're law-keeping Judeans turned to Christ, there is no respect of the stature of persons with Yahweh. He will confer honor, dignity, and peace to everyone, to every one of the children of Israel who labors for good. All of these statements have to be accepted in the context which Paul supplies.
The text of Paul's next statement in verse 12 shows that Paul is contrasting those without the law and those with the law. Well, in the text of verse 16 of this chapter, Paul cites a prophecy of Jeremiah concerning the children of Israel, and he cites it in relation to those without the law. Therefore, the entire context of the chapter proves that Paul is distinguishing only the Israelites who were put off from Yahweh, who no longer kept the Mosaic law, to the remnant of Israel among the Judeans who maintained the Mosaic law. When we present the next segments of this epistle, we hope to illustrate these things even further. The comments in Paul's epistles must be understood in their own context and not removed one verse at a time in order to serve a perverse and unscriptural universalist agenda. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther on the Jews, part eight, with Sword Brethren. Next weekend, Friday and Saturday, I got a few things to talk about, but we're going to take phone calls, and I beckon your participation. Praise Yahweh, and good night.